0: Hello and welcome to The Tally Ho, a podcast all about classic cult TV show The Prisoner with me Bex and me Eason and this is our episode all about Hammer Into Anvil.
1: Yes, before we get into things we'd like to once again thank everyone who is listening and supporting the podcast, everyone who's been getting in touch, telling us how much they've been enjoying the episode and also giving us their thoughts on some of the sort of commentaries that we've been providing on the episodes.
0: Yep, and although we haven't got a guest on this week's show, uh, do check out our bonus episode that went out just a few days ago where we spoke to Brian Gorman, who is the actor, writer and artist behind Everyman, which a lot of Prisoner fans might know as the stage play and graphic novel and audio drama about Patrick McGuinness early life and career. And we also spoke to him about his other work on New Dawn Fades, which is about the 90s Manchester music scene, and his brand new project, which is his one-man Bond stage play, Every Bond Movie in 60 Minutes.
1: Yeah, it's a really wonderful chat, and we hope you have a chance to sit down and listen to that and find out a little bit more, not just about his work and his interest in The Prisoner, but also some of his other things that he's been working on too. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about Hammer into Anvil. Uh, This is the 10th episode in the original UK broadcast run of The Prisoner, and it certainly is one of those episodes which doesn't immediately spring to mind as one of your most well-known episodes when you're thinking about The Prisoner, but I think it really is uh, a classic episode of the show simply because it's
0: so distinct. Yeah, it's interesting that it's, it's not an episode about number six trying to escape or being experimented on for once. Instead, he's the one who is essentially experimenting on someone else and trying to break them instead and using the mechanisms of the village in his own favour, really. It also features the return of Patrick Cargill, who we previously saw in Many Happy Returns, playing the character Thorpe, who is one of the people that he meets when he's back in London and is initially distrustful of the fact that number six has turned up again. And there's nothing that suggests that this is actually Thorpe now being number two. Although there's also nothing that says that it's not Thorpe being number two. So it's just another way that the prisoner plays mind games with the audience, really.
1: (laughs) And it also features the return of the big red phone that was last seen in A, B and C when uh, Colin Gordon was uh, furiously sipping glasses of milk whilst occasionally the village overlords would call him up to ask him how he was getting on breaking number six. And in this case, uh, it returns. Uh, Intriguingly, I think um, we'll get into this, but uh, there's usually the three normal-sized phones mm. uh, on the number two controller desk. And in this case, there's only two, and the big red phone has appeared as well. And when that appears, it often means that number two is on edge. Yeah, <laughs> And certainly, I think Patrick Gargill's number two really is. Um, he's a number two who is very rapidly in this episode Pushed to his very limits by uh, number six it's really nice that it just flips everything that we've seen in the format if indeed there is a format for the prisoner uh, on its head by having an episode which is uh, not about an escape attempt it's not about somebody trying to break a uh, number six it is just the complete opposite he's staying put and he's going to get revenge as we'll find out on number two and use the opportunity to try and break uh, number two himself which is You know, it's remarkable that for a show, again, that I know we always say this, but in 17 episodes, they still find time to flip the way the show was dealing with its subject matter on its head to keep it fresh. So it never feels repetitive.
0: And it also features the first appearance of (laughs) Kosho.
1: Which deserves an episode in itself.
0: It does. Is is it the most bizarre sport ever invented? I think it's got to be up there.
1: It is up there. I mean, the fact that it just cuts to a game of Kosho and you expect to know exactly what's going on. (laughs) It's one of those examples of the prisoner basically saying that, you know, it's never going to explain things to you. It's just going to just start doing stuff. And this is the world of the prisoner and they will do whatever they want.
0: (laughs) So we're going to get to all of these things as we go through the episode. Uh, But in the meantime, we better start at the beginning.
2: You shouldn't have interfered, number six. You'll pay for this.
1: you will. So Hammer into Anvil written by Roger Waddis and directed by Pat Jackson.
0: Yes and apparently Roger Waddis wasn't normally a TV writer. Um, I was reading about him and apparently he was more of a poet and a comedy writer Mm -hmm. um, and he only has a handful of TV credits to his name which is maybe why this is a kind of an unusual episode of The Prisoner.
1: So again we have uh, the voice of Robert Reedy in the uh, voiceover at the beginning as the uh, voice of number two and uh somewhat confusingly when it cuts to uh, number 2 as he turns around in his uh, chair during the opening credits uh, we don't just see you know a regular patrick cargill sitting in his chair it has this unusually large close up of his face just staring <laughs> at the camera which is very unusual um why i do not know but it, it makes him different
0: it does and it kind of sets the tone for the fact that you know the, the, the sort of paranoid disintegrating nature of his Psyche as it goes on, that you just have this giant close-up of his face. Yeah, it is you know? an
1: episode about about the number two in this case. So I suppose the the emphasis does switch from being um, a story about uh, what the village is going to do to number six, and it's more about what uh, what six is capable of doing if given the chance to get revenge.
0: Yeah, I, I do sometimes wonder if uh, somewhere there's like a, a place where failed number twos get sent. <laughs> And it's Patrick Cargill and um, Colin Gordon from ABC and, and the General. And they're just sitting around commiserating with each other about <laughs> how number six got the better of both of them.
1: <laughs> so we begin in the hospital, a place that we've seen many, many times in the show, which has often been the site of unusual experiments that have been uh, performed by uh, the village on its own citizens. In this case, it feels slightly strange because the hospital does seem to be functioning a little bit uh, like a regular hospital as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, so number 73, who is a young woman who I think is the only character to ever have a seven in their name in the entire series. (laughs) Uh, Make of that what you will. She's been brought in because she has apparently tried to commit suicide by slashing her wrists. And she's in a hospital bed while number two is interrogating her, wanting to know why she did it. And it quickly becomes clear that she's been brought to the village because her husband is a person of interest to the village authorities and they want to know where he is. And they've clearly been interrogating her for some time. She keeps saying she doesn't know. I think at one point she says that he's still over there, somewhere there, but we never find out where there is.
1: Yeah, the the illusions that maybe you know her husband may have been involved in some kind of work that involves the use of uh, there in the in the sort of geopolitical sense is is mm-hmm. very telling here again the show doesn't give away whose side anyone is actually on, but the fact also that the village is able to to bring people at will to its own site in order to interrogate them and find out information it just shows the the reach of this place and it 's not always a a specialized uh prison it's it It, it can just be used as a as an interrogation device.
0: Yeah. And number two is trying to convince number 73 that her husband has been unfaithful and therefore she shouldn't worry about betraying him and mm. giving up where he is. I think he tries to show her photographs of um, her husband with some woman at a hotel somewhere. Yeah. Whether or not these are real, um, there's no way of knowing and there's no way for her to know. And indeed, if they could find him in a hotel to photograph him, why couldn't they find where he is? Yeah. Um, but she's increasingly distraught with this line of questioning that she feels she either can't or won't give any further answers to.
1: Yeah, it really sets the tone for this whole episode, certainly some of the themes which were explored, I think notably by, you know, by number two himself in a in a bizarre reversal of these opening scenes. Number 73 is clearly under a tremendous amount of mental strain as a result of this interrogation, and It's the fact that, number two, he he shows, and again, we'll see this throughout the episode, he shows very little regard for her as a person. She's a commodity to get the information. He knows full well that he's able to push whatever buttons he needs to push in order to get information. And the consequences of that are irrelevant to him as long as he gets what he needs. And it's that single-minded desire to get information at the expense of the safety and well-being of those who he's interrogating that you know it goes beyond what we've seen in other episodes where you know a number two or another member of the village says that you know you shouldn't break certain people they're too valuable
3: mm.
1: patrick cargill's number two is particularly cold and ruthless and i think he he doesn't seem to be somebody who can be reined in he's a bit out of control and uh his means are um are particularly savage i think
0: yeah and it also shows that it's not just people who are you know, maybe in the spy craft business or who are scientists or something like that who could be brought to the village. It's mm. people's family and their friends as well. Whatever means they need to use to get to the person they want, nobody seems to be immune from, from getting taken to the village if they think there's a use for them, however tangential that use might be. Yeah. And it, there's a, a strange... Um, sort of coincidence here, because this was filmed quite late on in the running order. I think it was even filmed beyond episode 10. It was like 12 or 13 or something. And Checkmate, of course, was filmed very early on, but they're back-to-back mm. in the original UK running order. And in Checkmate, uh, the Rook makes this comment to Number 6. When Number six first confronts him, and the Rook thinks that Number 6 is a guardian, um, at one point he says something like, uh, one one day I'll die and I'll show you all. And then he's, he says, oh no, I I didn't mean that, I didn't mean that. And now here we have a character, number 73, who has clearly tried to take her own life, been prevented from doing so by the village authorities who have now got her patched up in the hospital. And indeed when she does finally succeed in apparently committing suicide, number two is furious about it so this is clearly somewhere where they they don't like the idea that people might actually take the most extreme way out of the mm. village that's possible and having this and checkmate next to each other it's a very disturbing connection mm. that this is something that people are genuinely thinking about as the only possible way out of the village for them
1: yeah things really take what i think is a you know a very very dark turn for this show we are outside of the hospital. Um, we see uh, number six walking around, and he's near the hospital and he hears number 73 scream. And at that point, he runs over and into the hospital to help. He clearly knows this is a place where bad things happen. He runs in, he runs up the stairs, and uh, he attempts to kind of interrupt uh, whatever is actually going on there. Um, he's restrained by people at the door to her room, this is number 73's room, and as he gets there, he is, uh, he's stopped just at the moment where he sees number 73 uh, get up from her bed and jump out of the window.
0: Yeah, I mean, you very rarely see people actually die in the prisoner. Yeah. Um, and when they do, it's always sort of specifically bloodless. In fact, you very rarely see any blood at all hmm. in the prisoner as well, I guess, because they wouldn't have allowed that much to be shown on TV at that time.
1: Yeah, I remember it was quite shocking. I think it's in... Is it the general where you see number 6 cut his hand or something. Yeah, yeah. And even that seemed quite out of place just cuz it showed blood on screen for the first time. I think it's just it's a it's a stunningly dark moment for this show and I think it's so jarring that it really I suppose sets up you know a series of events that necessitate Six's response I mean, he you know he sees what happens and this is all about what drives him um, as a person as well to kind of right a wrong which he thinks in one way you know obviously he always disagrees with what the village does and he he's against the way that it works but I think he genuinely feels that he has a chance to atone for something terrible that the village has done and in this case specifically what this number two has done.
0: Yeah, and there's this one shot where you see out of the window um to where she's fallen below. And you can see they've very strategically got her jacket coming up over her head, so there's nothing specifically graphic about it, and yet it is, you know, completely chilling and heartbreaking all the same, that actually you don't need lots of blood and gore in order to make something as affecting as it is.
1: Yeah, and um, as we return to the room, and everyone except for number two is kind of in shock at what they've just seen. One of the most sort of chilling exchanges that we'll see between number six and any other character, I suppose, simply because it, you know, it's devoid of any of the usual humour or wisecracking that sometimes uh, six will will uh, uh, give a number two in response to something uh, they've done. You know, number two. Uh, uh seeing that 6 has interrupted says something along the lines of you know uh, you'll pay for this number 6 and uh, number 6 just coldly uh, responds no you will mm. and i think at that point you realize having seen what 6 is capable of that this is going to be really about 6 trying to get justice at a point in the village where he actually has the power to do something and he actually has you know a chance to uh, to strike at a number 2 who has done something almost which is kind of against the rules of what the village should be doing in a strange kind of way he's you know he this is something which is so horribly wrong that it sets in motion a series of events that play out wonderfully in a very dramatic episode but it's all about him trying to get justice for number 73 and it's strange because until this episode we've never met number 73 we have no idea the history between 73 and 6 but he just knows that what has been done to her is wrong and his moral compass is there to to set things right again Um, he's very much the kind of well i think he really plays sort of the hero in this story in Mm. a strange kind of way it's not it's not an episode about him doing things for his own means it really is about him trying to help somebody else in the village and not with a view to escaping or anything like that he wants to he wants to find some justice and you know almost in a western or something this mm. will be told as as the the lawman who comes to to clean up the town is that kind of thing
0: yeah and in some ways it makes it a much more traditional story than most prisoner episodes are and that right from the very beginning you have you know a, a very obvious villain who mm. may as well have a twirly mustache and you know, what, the person who's going to be the avenging hero, who is going to set right this terrible thing that has that has happened, and um, you know, it, it, you could you could almost put that kind of story into any action adventure show that mm-hmm. came at that time, or even that has come since, as a story of the week. But this being the prisoner, you then had the added layer of the fact that it's the very mechanisms of this surveillance state that number six is going to turn upon the people who are using it mm. um, which gives it an added dimension beyond what you could imagine being you know that you know half of all the ITC shows that were out there could have <laughs> done this kind of show but it would have been a, a gangster instead of a number two and you would have brought him down somehow.
1: And it does seem like this is a very personal mission for number six, although I was saying earlier, you know, we don't know much about seventy-three. Maybe this is not necessarily a reflection on how he feels specifically about her. But you know, if we take this number two to be Thorpe from a, from the earlier episode, mm. uh, many happy returns. Is this actually a personal vendetta that he has against Patrick Cargill's number two? Does he know that this is what this guy is like? And he sees a chance to take him down in the confines of the arena of the village rather than maybe other times when he's he's seen him act in a, in a highly immoral fashion.
0: Yeah. And we've got a, a very clear guide right from the opening scene as to what the plot is going to be about. The plot is going to be number six is going to bring down number two mm. for what he's done, which again is quite unusual for the prisoner and that it sets up what's going to happen. And then we just get the... You know, the the interest of watching how it's going to unfold.
2: You must emboss or hammer sign.
1: You must be anvil or hammer. I you know your gutter. and you see me as the anvil? Precisely. I am going to hammer you. Right, so Six is back at home. He's pacing up and down, clearly trying to think of a plan for how he's going to take down number two at that point number two actually calls him and asks him unusually to come to what he refers to as my house so not the green dome for once this is a guy who doesn't seem to be that used to the way the village works and how (laughs) things are called you know by their specific terms and things almost like he's been brought in as a new number two and he's not completely used to how things operate you know it's a detail that may mean nothing but i think it's kind of it's interesting that he does uh he doesn't call it the Green Dome as all the other people who um, who call number six on his uh, landline do.
0: Yeah, it's almost like he's saying, you know, you're in my house now, yeah. and these are my rules. But he's forgetting, uh, in some ways, that none of this actually belongs to him. Mm. That there's always somebody above him in the hierarchy, and he's there to do a job. So it's kind of telling that he he sort of lets that slip, really. That he he thinks of it as his own house. Mm. Um, to the extent that later on he'll think that, you know, it's even okay for him to fire the butler when it's clearly not.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's that it's that level of hubris that will lead to his downfall in some respect. But they sow these seeds quite early, I think, with these little details.
0: Yeah. So, number six, having no intention of going to uh, number two's house, uh, decides to go for a walk in the brisk village air and some uh, generic stripy goons <laughs> set upon him. <laughs> Uh, beating him up and bundling him into the back of a mini moke to take him to the Green Dome to see Number Two. And they're accompanied by a character who will come to know as Number 14, who in the episode is Number Two's sort of right-hand man. And Number 14 is played by Basil Hoskins, who I think did lots of TV, lots of uh, theatre, but who I think played um, the husband of Honor Blackman's character... <laughs> In, um uh, who, uh what, what was it called? The Upper Hand. Really? Yeah.
1: My goodness. <laughs> That's a connection which I, yeah.
0: <laughs> I almost called it Who's the Boss? But that was the American one. <laughs> I
1: had no idea.
0: <laughs> well, there you go.
1: <laughs> all I was going to say about him was that he looks a bit like Patrick McGowan and a bit like a young Michael Caine. That's all I had. That's
3: <laughs> all does, I had. He does a bit, actually. <laughs>
0: He does a bit. Um, But it's interesting in this episode that he is, right from the very beginning, um, very loyal to this particular number two. And obviously we've never seen him in the village before. I mean, a lot of characters come and go. But it made me wonder if maybe if a new number two is installed, do they sometimes bring staff with them, people Mm. they think they can trust? So how's number 14 come to the village with number two? specifically to act as his enforcer.
1: Yeah, it feels like he's he's been his right-hand man for a while. Mm. And the fact that we later learn this number two is, is being referred to as the new number two as well. He's newly installed and yet he's kind of brought his own staff with him, like you say, and it does seem that there are elements of him and his team having a conflict with the uh, existing village infrastructure. Mm. And it's all very well set up and it's a very... It's an interesting... Way of presenting um, a disruption to the hierarchy in the village, almost like it's also an episode about how things can go wrong when you recruit the uh, you know the wrong person. <laughs> yeah, and the village I think have made a mistake here uh, by getting Patrick Cargill's number two in, and it's a mistake which ultimately you know results in bad things happening for the number two. Whereas in other episodes. Has it ever been that bad that uh, that things go that awry and almost pull the fabric of of the village hierarchy apart without the intervention of, uh, of Number Two?
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost like you could you could film it from behind the scenes and it would be like an episode of uh, The Thick of It, where some new minister gets parachuted in <laughs> to uh, to run a ministry and they bring their own self with them and they just balls everything up immediately, and Malcolm Tucker's just running around swearing at them. And
1: you know they're not going to make it to the next episode. (laughs) Mm. So when Six is uh, brought into the Green Dome, Number Two is clearly upset that he sees Six's failure to turn up when he called him as like a a deep sign of insubordination, which would be the start of his attempt to to break Number Six. Um, He clearly it is interesting. I mean, it does seem like he knows Number Six quite Mm. a lot. And there is something very personal going on here. But he's really not happy with uh with that behavior and what i like is when you when you turn up in the room you see patrick cargill framed by two phones i think it's a, what is it, a yellow and a green one mm. and then like we were saying earlier we then see the dreaded the dreaded red phone as well and we know that this is going to come into play later on it's a sign of a of a number two who's uh who's going to go down in the episode um but two, in spite of everything, I mean, all he wants to do is break number six. And again, emphasising his, his own sense of how how good he is and how he's going to be able to do things that others haven't, um, haven't achieved before. He calls his predecessors um, all amateurs. And uh, I think in response to that, there's, there's an exchange where when number six sort of asks number two if he's a... You know, he's a professional sadist. I mean, the guy whips out a cane, which, you know, he pulls the top off and it's like a sword. I mean, mm-hmm. this is like, it's very theatrical, this number two. He's got all these little props that he uses and he's hes trying to emphasise how dangerous he is and how, how almost crazy he is as well. And in spite of everything that's going on, number six is completely calm. And I think this is the moment when you realise that number two doesn't realise who he's really up against here.
0: Yeah, he he. At one point, he he makes a sort of hover over Number Six's eyes, just trying to test him, just to see if he's going to flinch. And uh, when Number Six says that he's disgusted by him, he hits him. And I, I think this is the only time I can think of where a Number Two has actually hit Number Six. Yeah. They normally get their goons to hit him, but but this guy wants to get in on it himself.
1: You know where the last time it happened? In uh, Free for All. When he's under the influence yes. of like all the strange kind of mind control. Yeah. And Rachel Herbert's number two does the whole tick, tick thing. Yeah, But yeah. again, that was when number six was kind of um, under the control of the village anyway. He wasn't sure what was going on. And they have quite an excessive slapping match. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't respond. In this case, this is a guy who, who likes to throw around violence. And I think it directly reflects what we've seen earlier on with his desire to you know to break number 73 and he feels that physical physical force uh, is something he can use and he he's happy for he's happy to do it and actually he it shows how cold he is when you realize that he allowed somebody to kill themselves um you know that's the extent to which he he has no feeling or anything for for other people um in that in that sense he's unusually he's a very he's a very sociopathic number 2 um, he doesn't have that connection to the village and how it works. He doesn't want to serve his masters particularly well. Mm. He's just on a crazy power trip.
0: Yeah, he he sort of he enjoys what he views as his, I guess, social superiority being the number two who is in charge of the village, and therefore feels that he can slap people around and what's mm. anyone going to do anything about it because he's number two. But he also seems to like feeling that he's intellectually superior to everyone else. Because mm. he immediately starts quoting uh, Goethe in German. <laughs> and then when number six responds by by knowing the the passage um, from uh, Faust, I had to look that up, I didn't know it, uh, but apparently it's from Faust, and uh, translates it. It's, it's almost a sort of a, a parry back mm. in saying, actually, I'm also a match for you in terms of what you think you know. And it's, it's a particularly sort of, um, uh, how can I put it, like a, a sort of upper class um, civil servant thing where people who've had an expensive education are expected to know certain cultural touchstones. And then it's a way of excluding people who don't know them, if that makes sense. Mm you know which i think it i mean it still happens but i think 50 years ago it was even more prevalent particularly in the government in the civil service that you were the right sort of chap if you'd been to the right sort of school and you knew the right classical literature and you could you could join in in the right way
1: yeah i think it's meant to kind of elevate the conversation to the point where it excludes people Mm. whom those involved feel are you know are are not suitable to be part of it and haven't had the education to to partake in it even though they they're also valuing just the ability to quote things you know parrot fashion to each other as as a sign of intellectual superiority it Mm. does it does serve to act as a way to to make them feel like they're in a more intellectually superior level and it's interesting that he throws it—he throws it out there, number two. And yeah, and like you say, six is—you know—he knows. Well, his response almost implies that uh, from this point on, he's onto him completely. Mm. You know, and, he, and he's—you know—he's not impressed by this. And I think also it's speaking more about the show. It is his comment also and saying, you know, the everyman shouldn't be underestimated as well. Mm. And I think there's a lot in this episode about number two underestimating everyone and everything around him. He believes so much in his own hype that uh he fails to to see how it's all gonna fall in on himself as well and also the cult of the individual was what was terrifying concern in the village in checkmate
3: mm.
1: and yet in this episode i feel the number two is experiencing you know <laughs> uh, a terrible case of egomania or whatever it was <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, you know that you know yeah, he himself is actually starting to you know, to feel individual. He's, you know, he is, you know, he's better than everyone. He's no longer part of the regime. He feels he's elevated above it, and uh, that's not something I think that would fit with how the village would want their number two to behave.
0: Yeah, if you compare him with the number two in Checkmate, who's actually very calm and collected most of the time, except when he was doing karate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, th- this number two seems almost sort of too on edge and too eager to show his his authority in every aspect Mm. um, which is ultimately what's going to undermine him so this quote from goethe i've i've found the whole quote and a translation online i have no idea who did this translation i'm afraid but this is apparently from faust go obey my message make good use of your young days learn early to be clever on the great scales of fortune the balance rarely keeps still You must rise or sink. You must rule and win or serve and lose. Suffer or triumph. Be the anvil or the hammer. And of course in this it gets shortened down to you must be anvil or hammer. (laughs) Which number six immediately translates. And this is is kind of interesting because number two openly states that he intends to be the hammer and he's going to hammer number six Hmm. into submission. But there's another quote that I want to bring in, which mm. is by George Orwell. And it was uh, from when he, was, he wasn't writing about Goethe, he was writing about what he considered to be shoddy metaphors, mm. um, just in language generally. And he, he complained about people using this idea of the hammer and the anvil, because he said, in real life, it is always the anvil that breaks the hammer, never the mm. other way about. And actually, that's what happens here, that number two, hammers and hammers and hammers and hammers on this implacable slab of metal that is number six Mm. until the hammer itself shatters Mm. and the anvil remains
1: yep and he was and looking at it like that i mean there is never a way out where he wins Mm. and yet he engages with it because he believes he he is he is that mighty hammer and he will and he will destroy number six and yeah it's not going to end well
0: (laughs) He's not Thor, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not. It's not going to end the well. world, but you know, even his hammer broke in the end. Mm, what can you do? But he got another one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, in the middle of this exchange, uh, the red phone of Doom rings, and uh, Number Two answers it, and it's a call from one of his superiors. And all we hear obviously is his side of the conversation where he has to explain that uh, everything is fine, he doesn't need any assistance and uh, he'll take care of everything that's going on, which are the three things basically that uh, you say when it's all about to go terribly, terribly pear-shaped.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's the equivalent of when uh, the Prime Minister stands up and says that the uh, Home Secretary has their full support <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it may be. You know that by the next morning they're going to be gone.
1: Yeah, And... Uh, uh number two then sends uh Six away and orders uh the supervisor, who's a new supervisor in this, or an accessory supervisor, mm. to put extra surveillance on number six. I think clearly he knows that Six is a troublemaker and he's gonna try something, and he feels that he'll try and get ahead of him by uh actually starting to keep an eye on Six to preempt anything that Six is gonna do.
0: Mm. And I think from this exchange, um number six gets the sort of kernel of his idea of how he's going to break number two because he now knows what number two's weak point is, Hmm. which is that he's, um, I I suppose, scared of his own superiors but also worried that they're going to think that he's not doing a good job Hmm. and knows that there is some kind of tension there, some um, suggestion that they're already unsure about him and that they're already checking up that everything is okay.
1: Yeah, and it's the first example of how when the village has spent all the previous episodes trying to find out how to break Six by finding his weaknesses, this is Six simply using his own initiative to to turn that whole strategy, not on the village, but on the number two who's in charge of it, as a way to, to strike at something that you, you can actually take down, rather than trying to go after something too big. So maybe after episodes where he's tried to organise you know, mass insurrection or or try to escape the village. It's actually an interesting victory for him to have a positive effect on something that will be a meaningful uh, message to the village, which is, you know, he will not tolerate this behaviour. And interestingly, it's not something about him. You know, he's doing it uh, in revenge for what number two has done to another uh, village resident. He's not saying that he's going to police the situation, but he won't let unjust actions uh, go unpunished and he will hold specific people responsible and he's not going after the whole village is he he's Mm. just taking out the person who he feels is responsible for number 73 committing suicide at the beginning of the episode
0: so the plan begins at the general store. (laughs) Where they've got a nice display in the window, a few signs, music makes a quiet mind and music says it all. Mm. Um, Both ultimately a bit meaningless, (laughs) but but quite a nice little window display. There's also, for some reason, in the same display, a single red can of village food. Mm. Um, It's not even specifically what kind of food, it's just village food. Mm. Maybe it's a surprise food when you open it up and see what you've got for dinner.
1: could be snake in a can.
0: And also, some kind of bizarre carved seagull. I don't, yeah, a strange ornament.
1: It's not the Hamleys window display, is it? (laughs) No.
0: Um, But he heads inside, and first he sees a copy of the tally ho uh, on the rack on the wall with the headline, Increase Vigilance Call from New Number Two. It's all very sinister. It's uh, clearly, again, a sign of Number Two's paranoia, but also the idea of this surveillance state in which the people themselves are called on to be part of the the surveillance Mm. mechanism by reporting anything that they find unusual. And ultimately, that is going to be turned against Number Two himself, because Number Six is going to use this increased vigilance from the people in order to effectively gaslight number two, uh, into, uh, losing his grip. But also on this magazine rack, uh, there are two <laughs> magazines. That I don't think we've ever seen before <laughs> one is called village journal <laughs> and the other is called village weekly. And they've both got very kind of nice generic shots of smiling people <laughs> on the front. Like they're just sort of lifestyle magazines or something. But what's going to be in them? What's going to be in those magazines? Uh, Here's a list of all the people who got murdered this week. (laughs) Um, Here's all the new residents who have the same number as residents that you're not allowed to remember ever existed. Mm. Uh, Go play in the stone boat. Everything's fine. (laughs) Um, I don't know. But also, I, I like to think that there's some kind of great rivalry between these two magazines. The, the the staff who write them, wherever they might be in the village, I don't know where the headquarters are, um, you know, I I hope that they get together once a year to have a Kosho tournament mm-hmm. between them, <laughs> just to see who is the best village life magazine.
1: Yeah, it's really strange because we you know, we never see these things and like and it's also strange that given that the village is is so confined, how it manages to have three circulating publications you know a daily a weekly and probably a, you know i don't know what the frequency of the the village journal is but it's just it's just bizarre that they they've thrown this into this episode it's probably some set dresser who thought would be kind of funny to make some <laughs> some spoof magazines to put in there um but like you say, i think it's really funny that they have you know the covers of perfectly normal normal looking happy people um and you're thinking what the hell is in these magazines as well and who would actually buy them
0: yeah, also in the background behind it, I think you can see village cans of baked beans, uh, I think pea soup, <laughs> um, spaghetti maybe, and then strangely some cans that aren't village branded. Mm. They, they look almost like they've got kind of bits of blue and white with lemons on them or something. Um, I don't know who snuck those in. It's an approved village food. Uh, yeah, that's everything I could see in a still shot from, <laughs> from that scene.
1: <laughs> so uh, Six has a look he uh, he sees uh, the headline about number two's call for uh, vigilance he clearly realizes this is a, a message a veiled message at, uh, at him and a desire to keep him under surveillance as well um, and he buys a copy of the paper but also takes a look at the records which are on a stand by the cashier's till as well there's a few things there again they kind of contextualize you know, maybe the era that we're seeing and also uh, what kind of things are available in the village shop. There's a copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream. There's uh, some Italian 18th century uh, record. Something, there's something by somebody called Annie Fisher. What other ones are there?
0: There's one called Four Saints in Three Acts. <laughs> I don't know what that's all about.
1: And then the main one um, that he takes note of is uh, a record... Uh, which contains music by uh, Bizet, there's one on the rack and there's, I think, several sort of stacked up behind as well.
0: Yeah, and I think it's called the La Yeah. What I really love about this music is that it's, it starts off just being played on the record in the shop when he's, he's listening to it in the booth, but then it gets absorbed into the soundtrack of the mm. episode and becomes this kind of dramatic, forward-moving piece of music that kind of drags you through this mm. constant attacks on uh, on number two. Yeah, so they've got uh, five, six copies of the record, mm. and number two asks to hear all of them, and he takes them all over to this uh, wonderful listening booth, which is like some kind of um, plastic uh, dome that comes out of the wall, <laughs> and you can put your head in there and listen to whatever you've just put mm. on the, the gramophone next to it. And uh, he goes through the records one by one, listening to the opening parts of the music, and constantly staring at his watch.
1: Yeah, so he's clearly trying to um, instill a sense of suspicion in uh, the village shopkeeper. So he, you know, he's gone in there. He's he's asked for all the copies of the same record, and he's listening to them sequentially. And occasionally, what he's doing is he. After he starts it, he he then looks at his watch, like he's timing something which is in the music. And I think on the third recording um, that he listens to, he writes something down on a piece of paper and then he gathers all the records back and takes them back to uh, the village shopkeeper.
0: Yeah. And then uh, the shopkeeper says, there's no one to touch, I think it must be the the conductor or something. Mm, Um, There's no one to touch him on Bizet. It takes a Frenchman, (laughs) which is another weird kind of mention of France that we sometimes get.
1: Yeah, I love these bits where they where they have a bit of dialogue which tries to place anything geopolitical around the village, and it's always it's always France they use. Mm. It's when I think it was it in Free for All when um, number two turns up and he wants to have breakfast mm. at number six's house, and he says something like, "Or well, number six says uh, that the food is you know, is the food French," and then number 2 says oh it's international mm. um and the same with the uh taxi driver in arrival yeah who starts speaking french believing that it's a language that number 6 might speak it's like the it's the it's the go to for when they want to uh segue into whether you know they want to discuss where the village lies in the in the geopolitical sphere as well it's always mm. and it's always funny it's always the french who <laughs> uh, you know they bring up
0: but Number Six says that he didn't like the recording after all, <laughs> and doesn't win any of the records. Um, and he also goes off without taking his tallyho with him. Hmm. Uh, and when the shopkeeper, who interestingly isn't the same shopkeeper that we've seen before, yes,
1: yeah, so he must have been basically uh, tossed out of the village after um, the insubordination <laughs> that he uh, that he tried to join Number Six's plan to a uh, to escape in checkmate, I believe.
0: Yeah, this this shopkeeper seems uh, much happier, well, happy's not really right word, Conformist. Conformist, <laughs> yeah. Um, because he looks at the tally home and sees that number six has circled the word security and put a big question mark next to it. So he immediately calls number two uh, to tell him what he has uh, witnessed in his vigilant state.
1: Yeah, so we get this, you know, the first hint that basically this is what six's plan is going to be and it's just going to escalate throughout the episode his he he knows that he's being watched and he's going to do various things that will trigger uh suspicion in those who are watching him and feed that back to number two in order to make number two even more suspicious and maybe ultimately slip up or succumb to you know the paranoia that will develop in him about the fact that six might be doing something and he's trying to work out what it is but he just can't get his um his hands on it
0: and Six hangs around near the shop, sort of watching and waiting to see what's gonna happen. He
1: spends a lot of time in that little that little cobbled area yeah. in this episode. <laughs> and interestingly, it's one of the bits where I'm sure it's not intentional, but um obviously the show was filmed in Port Marion, which was a, a functioning resort at the time, and he's standing most of the time in front of a um a painted bit of text on one of the walls behind him, which is a real one that exists in Port Marion. Uh, which is uh, one that says private residence only, which they just <laughs> left it the whole time, which is, it's odd, because it clearly wouldn't be something that, that would be there in the village. I mean, clearly it's the wrong font and everything, <laughs> but they just leave it in there.
0: Yeah. I mean, who's going to sit and pause and watch the background of every still in the show on <laughs> no a one Blu-ray? would do that. <laughs> no one
1: would do that. And no one would listen to a podcast where people discussed what they did. <laughs>
0: well. So from his uh, viewpoint, uh, Under the Arch he watches the shopkeeper take the stack of records off to the Green Dome and he knows that the bait has been taken at this point, mm. that number two is clearly interested enough in whatever suspicious things number six has been doing, that he's going to take all those records and listen to them and see what on earth it's all about.
1: Yeah, and two is looking at all the, all the records, he's playing them all and he basically says, and I, well, I think he's trying to time them as well to see if there's anything that he can pick up. Yeah, you know, he just says that there's nothing that he can see that that stands out, and the shopkeeper sort of is adamant that you know this is what he saw. It was all you know that Six's behaviour was really strange, not only with the records but also he mentions the copy of the tally ho, and the tally ho is the one that has the word. I mean, it's such a it's an obvious trap to you know <laughs> to lay, but the fact that it had um, you know the word security hidden, it's something that immediately triggers an alarm bell in uh, in number two, who's clearly you know he's. He's in such a heightened state of, of panic, I think, generally, but trying to remain calm that he, uh, you know, that there's a look on his face when he sees the copy of the Tally Ho, which is basically him trying to process what might be going on. But also he's clearly unable to discuss it with anyone, you know, and I think that internalization of these things comes from what we were saying earlier, which is he doesn't actually feel comfortable with other people in the village. Hmm. You know, he, he has no one to trust except for probably number 14, who's his right hand man throughout the episode.
0: Yeah, and his response to this is to uh, call up on the big screen live footage of whatever Number Six is doing right then, and, and it reminds me of uh, Colin Gordon in A B and C, um, when he he can't sleep and he wakes up in the middle of the night <laughs> just to see whatever Number Six is doing, and he's walking around. And he's an irritating man, <laughs> always walking. He's like his 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 instinct is to say, "What on earth is this guy doing now?" You know, he's he's so paranoid that uh, he's got to he's got to keep allowing him himself. So he gets live footage from Number Six's cottage, where Number Six is sitting at a desk, writing something and uh, stuffing it into an envelope.
1: So um, although we have Number Two uh, watching Number Six, Six has always been aware of the fact that he's under surveillance, obviously. I mean, not just in this episode, but he knows that his house has got cameras all over the place. So he knows that whatever he's doing is going to be another trap that will be the next in line to, uh, to bait Number Two. In this case, he, um, he leaves and then later on, um, he watches Number 14, who he's had only one interaction with him so far, which is a fight at the end of the episode. He sees 14 at, um, at the village cafe and he follows uh, Number 14, who uh, brazenly goes to Number Six's house who, and breaks in. Um, well, well, you break in if the door just opens. I mean, it's very, yeah.
0: yeah, you just sort of walk in. Yeah.
1: Well, he has unauthorised entry, I suppose, <laughs> uh, to Number Six's house. And um, he goes through his papers and he uh, finds one of the pieces of paper which he believes uh, number six was scribbling something down on. But even then we see that the piece of paper appears to be blank.
0: Yeah. And I I assume that number six very deliberately to press hard enough with the pen that it would leave indentations Mm. on the paper below, knowing that they would, or hoping that they would go in and and get it and test it. Um, And once again, they've taken the bait and number 14 takes this apparently blank piece of paper uh, back to number two, who starts holding it up to the light and doing all sorts of things, trying to see what's on it. Mm. But he he obviously doesn't trust number 14 to the extent that he'll let number 14 stay in the room while Mm. he sees what's on it. Because before he puts it in this little projector that's going to miraculously show up what the indentations are, he sends number 14 Mm. out of the room so he can look at it himself.
1: Yeah, so on one hand, we have 14 who implicitly trusts number two but it's not reciprocated or if it was that uh, that trust is already broken broken down or is breaking down throughout the episode yeah. um but when number 14 is gone uh, number two uh, is able to read the message which like you say like, yeah it must be uh, dented on you know on another page and what it says is to x04 uh, ref your query via bise record number two's instability confirmed detailed report follows d6 <laughs> mm.
3: <laughs>
1: so it's a nice little um, faux coded message uh from an XO 4 to a d6 um which is designed to basically make number two be pushed over the edge i mean he knows that he's worried and he's and he probably can sense that Two is prone to um, being quite paranoid about things. And in this case, a message like that, which implies that uh, number two himself is being watched or surveyed in some way, is the ideal way to uh, to turn that surveillance on number two. I mean, ultimately, you know, two knows how much, you know, how much goes into their, their work on, or the villagers work on how they survey their own citizens. So he's probably now thinking, why am I the target of this? And the fact that there's a reference to his instability would only add to his own sort of personal insecurities about how he's feeling. Because it's clear that he is himself becoming quite paranoid, even in the opening moments of this episode, about what Six is actually doing throughout the whole thing. Number six,
0: a plant. So number two is now firmly convinced that number six is a plant of some kind, (laughs) This must also in some way make sense to him in light of the fact that number six sort of didn't flinch when he was being interrogated. Mm. That active if, if number six has been sent to keep tabs on him, then uh of of course he didn't, you know, act subordinate like he was supposed to, because he's not really a prisoner. Mm. Um so it, it just feeds into that that idea of of number two's that if your job is to be reporting back to the higher authority, that explains why you wouldn't be afraid of Number Two. Mm.
1: I think he's a, he's a he's clearly a man who's used to people being afraid of him, mm. and and that's arguably what happens at the very beginning of the episode. He 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 puts so much fear into Seventy Three that she takes her own life, and he's like he, this is this is common behaviour to him. I think so. Again, Six is uh, back at home, again completely aware that he's uh, he's being watched as well. He's reading a book and at a certain time he looks at his watch. Probably, you know, he was, he doesn't know an obvious way that you wouldn't do if you're on your own. Um, <laughs> but he knows that um, you know, he's being watched doing this. Um, he gets up, he takes an envelope from under his blanket on his bed and he heads out um, sort of in the late evening into the village. Again, being watched on the big screen by number two and number 14. Now, they follow him and they find that he's heading towards the stone boat. At a certain point, two is speaking to... 14 on a on like a radio or something because I think two stays a little bit back and 14 is the one who kind of gets closer and closer to the boat to actually see exactly uh, where number six is going and what he's doing
0: yeah and number two is sort of constantly micromanaging mm. him through this whole process and telling him you know follow him go a bit closer stop tell me what he's doing <laughs> um you know he, he won't go any further himself but he's he's so controlling mm. He can't just send Number fourteen off to do the job and come back and report back. You have to constantly be kept updated he's so he's so nervous about the whole thing, I think deep down
1: yeah and um, as they watch six going to the stone boat, i mean you know the, uh two is basically relying on on like you say a live commentary of everything um that's happening so he can get the information but but he doesn't get involved himself. he clearly mm-hmm. is sending fourteen to even then to remain at a distance uh six does something there we immediately. You know, not sure what it is, but he leaves and he's and there's a shot of him looking around to check that he has been seen going to the stone boat. So he's fully aware that each of these traps he's laying is, you know, is being followed. As he, you know, he then uh, leaves again and then both two and number 14 go to the stone boat. They rummage around knowing that, you know, he went there with this envelope and he's left without it. So they um, are hunting around for it and they actually find it. I think it's it's on a bench or something in there.
0: Yeah, sort of under a cushion yeah. um, or a bench, which isn't actually in the cabin if you go to the stone <laughs> boat.
1: But sort of you know, subtly hidden in the way that it's a message for somebody else. And, you know, for, you know, for Two, this is just, you know, it's a hidden message which he's managed to stumble across. So he immediately puts a tremendous amount of, of value on it as some secret code, which, uh, which Six might be passing to, a, to somebody else, presumably XO4. Um, who he is worried is the person uh, that Six is communicating uh, with about his own sort of instability.
0: Yeah, and when they bring the papers back, he once again sends number 14 out of the room before he opens the envelope.
1: Yeah, he doesn't even get as far as even you know, looking at them properly. No. So as before, he at least had the paper in front of him and he was trying to read it. But we've now gone a step back where he's, you know, he he's, ret- well, he's used 14 to retrieve the envelope, but he's so worried, probably about, what was on that thing about his own instability that anyone could be involved and he certainly doesn't want any more information to leak out maybe to people who do know him quite well.
0: Mm. So he opens the envelope and inside are three blank sheets of paper (laughs) uh, nothing indented on any of these this time. So he calls down to the lab and number 283 answers and comes up and number two gives him the papers for testing and 283 is a little bit quizzical about what on earth this is all about because to him they seem like blank sheets of paper Mm. and he's saying you know look for words for figures anything that's on them and and the fact that this scientist not even pushes back but just questions it at all immediately incurs number two's wrath that he doesn't like to be questioned
1: but it also comes across as this lab scientist being a a longer term member of the village Mm. and he's not used to dealing with this number two. Mm. You know, almost like this request that's being made is is very bizarre by a number two standards, implying that there's a there's a real mismatch here between mm. um, number two and the way the village works.
0: Yeah. Then back down in the lab, he's talking to his colleague, number 242. <laughs> Apparently uh, people who work in the labs only get numbers in the kind of mid-hundreds that are very important. And, uh, you know, they, they've been testing it through every machine they've got, nothing's coming out. saying, shall we put them through again? There's no point. We've tried. There's nothing on there. Mm. Um, You know, they're clearly thinking, oh God, now we've got to go and tell number two that there's nothing on it.
1: And they know that his response is going to be bad. They know him well enough, I suppose, to know that he's quite irrational, but he, this is not something he's going to want to hear. Um, Mm -hmm. Because clearly he's given him this paper with the sincere belief that there is something on it. And they know there is nothing on it. And now... Delivering the message means that it's kind of a, you know, don't shoot the messenger thing. And they know that uh, I think number two does like to shoot messengers. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, and in fact, he uh, basically accuses 283 of being part of some kind of a conspiracy mm-hmm. with number six. Because it's the only logical explanation he can reach for um, to explain why there would be blank sheets of paper ah. hidden in the stone boat. He, he can't, he can't reach for the one explanation for everything, which would be that number six is messing with mm. him. He, he can't grasp that. And so the only other thing that can be is that anyone who tells him he's wrong is part of a conspiracy against him.
1: Yeah, he's, I mean, it's all, it's all kind of an act, I think, as well, because he's, you know, it's that level of, confidence and privilege that he's aware of within himself that makes him unable to to see the real situations occurring around him and uh, you know i love the fact that he goes from being somebody who's cold and calculating at the very start to being somebody who's already behaving extremely irrationally and is unable to actually understand the situation i suppose at all and it's just i mean like you say he's just jumping to completely uh, paranoid explanations of things because he he can't fathom a situation you know where number six is is his equal in any way he just mm. can't understand it so the only explanation he can come up with is you know it's more likely that everyone's part of this conspiracy than number six is is just messing with them. Mm. so with uh number two suitably perturbed by uh this plan <laughs> involving the blank pieces of paper Uh, number six decides to move on to his next trap that he will set to uh, increase number two's paranoia. So uh, he goes to a stall uh, in the village where he's able to buy an advert in the personal columns of the Tally Ho. And, uh, well, I suppose we learn that a nine-word message uh, costs three units. Do you want to have a go at uh, (laughs) at what that message was? Because I'm not pronouncing it.
0: Um... Uh, okay. Uh, he must smell en aldea que se sueña. Exactly. <laughs> Can you tell that I don't speak Spanish? <laughs> um, yes, but it is a quote from, uh, Don Quixote and, uh, he claims to the lady who is running the store where the personal ads go, who knew the tallio had personal as at all? Um, Uh, Maybe people are looking for love in the village, who knows?
1: Uh, Pretty sure you do that in in The Village Weekly.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, he tells her that uh, it's a a joke with a friend to explain this strange message that he's putting in. Um, But she does recognise that uh, one of the words means village, which uh, he confirms, which to the audience basically sort of piques our interest as to what this is. And then later on, if you don't speak Spanish, you find out what it is. Um, but it's it's a, a sort of two-pronged attack that he's staging at this point. He's placing the personal ad that he knows is going to uh, come into effect a bit later on when it appears. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he immediately heads around the corner to the phone, where he asks to speak to the head of psychiatrics. Because apparently you can just call up the hospital and ask to speak to the head of the psychiatrics, and he's not doing anything at that point. So he answers the phone, number 249, uh, owner of a fine lava lamp and uh, some kind of uh, semi-professional Donald Pleasants lookalike by the <laughs> looks of it. <laughs>
1: he does look a lot like Donald Pleasant.
0: <laughs> and Six asks him, what's the verdict on our friend? I want your report on number two.
1: Yeah, and uh, number 249 uh, responds quizzically, you know, who is this? And he's responding generally because he has no idea what this conversation is about. And number six responds by saying, I'd understand uh, you'd rather not talk on the telephone, which uh, is good because obviously if the phone call is being recorded in some way, um, it will imply that six is having a uh, secret conversation with um, 249 about uh, number two. Alternatively, um, it's also working to leave number 249, who's probably also heard the call to be very vigilant about number six's behaviour, it's probably made him think this is something odd that's going on and I need to report this to number two. And by knowing that's going to happen, it's just going to increase the confusion of the whole situation by having another report coming in to number two that six is involved in some plan or conspiracy against him.
0: So predictably, number two calls number 249 in for questioning And uh, he's got this elaborate oscilloscope set up Mm. in order to prove that uh, 249 was having a conversation with number six. And I was reading, I think it might have been in uh, the Fallout book, Mm. about the fact that in the original script, number six was going to have disguised his voice. Ah, okay. Um, But then they didn't do that. But they went ahead with the, the oscilloscope proof anyway, <laughs> um, which just makes number two look even more sort of paranoid and delusional in that what is very clearly number six is voice on the tape. He still has to prove that it's number six. Mm. Um, so he, he calls up a recording of the phone call, which also proves that the village authorities are recording everybody's phone calls yep. all of the time.
1: And they're able to pattern match them to whoever's speaking as well. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but also they've got a recording of number six from an earlier interrogation and they uh, managed to pattern match the word you, mm. I think it is, on the big screen for everyone to see that it is exactly the same squiggly set of green lines um, proving that he was talking to number six.
1: Yeah, and in a, in a strange kind of foreshadowing of things, I mean, you can imagine this being a, a real thing that is being used in some kind of surveillance operation. Where people are able to make recordings and pattern match them to you know to other people's uh, speech patterns, and things to recognize who they are, and I know that you know this is something which is possible now, but it's interesting that they you know they really went deep into some of the ideas about how state surveillance could actually function in a show which is this old i mean you know it's it's timeless now we kind of look at it, and we think um you know it's really clever they have these little plot points in, but actually it's it's way ahead of its time in how they saw how extensive the nature of sort of the big brother state would actually be um i mean they you know they thought of of, you know, of everything and you know you couldn't actually do anything uh without being tracked being watched and even if you tried to hide what you were doing um you know the state was always sort of several steps ahead of you so it adds to the. i mean this is a you know clearly a very paranoid environment anyway in the village um so i think the fact you have a character like number 2 in it who is completely caught up in it as well even though he's technically the person who should be overseeing it it's you know it's a really interesting way in which it's unclear at all levels of hierarchy exactly what is going on i mean it's almost like the the confusion is just overwhelming for number 2
0: yeah and when number 249 um the psychiatrist tries to explain that he doesn't know anything. Hmm. He doesn't know why number six called him. Um, He never saw number six later. He's not been doing any of this. Number two doesn't believe him and takes this as evidence that he was part of a conspiracy. Hmm. But what was the alternative that he could say? Yes, I was Hmm. doing this with number six, which is also proof. No no matter what he says or does, Hmm. number two will take that as proof that he is part of a conspiracy Hmm. because he's already decided that this is what's happening. This is what makes sense.
1: But these plans are... I think this is because number six, I think, does know number two. He knows what buttons to push, and whereas you could imagine this number two saying, I want to have a go at number six, you know, I know him, I can take him down. It's interesting that I think I think you know if this is Thorpe and i'm you know i you know i I know that there are all these characters who do reappear multiple times. It's not clear if it's the same character who's appeared in a previous episode or not, you know if you do view it as the reappearance of Thorpe it just takes on a really wonderful added dimension i think in this episode which is very much about 6 knowing that uh patrick cargill's number 2 is you know is somebody who can be uh pushed in a certain way and can be broken himself and he relishes the opportunity to do this in light of what number 2 does at the beginning of the episode mm.
0: and he starts to have a, a a bit of a um sort of breakdown in this scene mm. Where he's like shouting, "Would you like to sit in this chair?" Um, You know, the the strain of being in charge of the village is clearly getting to him at this Mm. point. That he's just ranting at his, you know, subordinates, Mm. Um, and feeling very sorry for himself Mm. that this this role that he has is is so immense. The burden on him is so Mm. immense that you know only he can do it. Nobody else can do it. He won't be told what to do. He's in charge. He's the only person who can run the village.
1: Hmm. I mean, the fact, he kind of raises his voice. He's shouting at the psychiatrist. I mean, this just makes him seem, I suppose, to a psychiatrist who's had this strange conversation with number six, who said, you know, what's your thoughts on on number two? He's just now been brought in front of number two, who is kind of ranting and raving. It must be quite complicated for number 249 now to know exactly what's going on mm-hmm. because he's clearly been brought into the situation but now he's probably observing this and thinking actually there is something um, wrong with uh, with number two's sort of mental health here because he's clearly cracking under the pressure. And it's important to note, I think, during this exchange that number two is starting to realise how his behaviour must be being perceived not just to number 249, but to other people as well, because he actually says to uh, number 249, in light of, I think, the message as well about his instability and that coded message, um, he asks if, you know, if the psychiatrist is preparing a report on his mental health. And I think it's a really interesting moment here because, well, for two reasons. One, I think it's important that they're actually addressing this as an issue quite explicitly. So, It's actually taking on the fact that they want to discuss number two's behavior and explicitly make reference to his mental health and potentially his awareness that his irrationality might be the signs of him actually having a breakdown in some way, Um, which I think is quite a a challenging thing to address on a, you know, on like a, you know, a spy-fi fantasy ITC show. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, it's done in a it's done in a very interesting fashion. That I, I can't imagine this being uh, dealt with in in other shows of its era, in you know, of its ilk as well. And I think, it, you know, it's interesting that they have decided to address it like that. The second point that leads on from that is whether this is actually something which, well, I don't know if it's in the original script um, as written by uh, Roger Waddis, but I'm, I'm kind of intrigued as to whether this is something that Patrick McGowan himself brought into it most notably in light of that that scene where he he points at uh the globe-like chair and mm. says do you know uh, would you like to sit in this chair because it's it's a moment which although is number two speaking to number 249 I wonder if this is more a message that number six slash Patrick McGowan is is having with those around him is he simply also addressing the stress of of being in charge of of the prisoner you know it, there are so many stories I mean some of them are apocryphal and uh, you know some of them documented about the fact that this was very much something that he felt especially as it developed later on you know it was it was his baby although it was you know it was a uh, it was co-created by um uh, by Markstein himself it's something which I think he he took a lot of ownership of and certainly drove in in directions which Mark Steen probably didn't want to have it going as well he wanted to have you know a more of a more of a traditional spy thriller in the ITC mold and here you wonder if all these people may have been questioning his decisions and wondering what he was doing why he was so um, well why he wanted to have sort of complete control over this whole thing and I think McGowan felt that this was his and he was in charge and he would shepherd it and no one else was able to do it or to or at least to actually bring the show, you know, into line with his vision, which is why he had to constantly step in. I mean, from from replacing directors to falling out with people, he had a very specific way of doing things. And, you know, I you know, I just wonder whether this is his way of saying this is, you know, this is my thing and you know how difficult it is. Would you be able to do this? Mm. No, you wouldn't. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and maybe it's also him feeding into his own feelings about, you know, the, the the great mental strain that I think putting this show together took on him. I mean, I, you know, I think he does. He has spoken about this, I think, in various interviews that it was it was a huge Undertaking, and it's you know, I think that's one of the reasons why it doesn't you know, it didn't run for years because he 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 knew what he wanted to say with this show and he managed to get it out of him. But it must have been a tremendous, um, I mean, I think he really enjoyed making it, but it must have been a tremendous burden. Mm -hmm. And you can see these interesting parallels with how McGuin may have felt about the making of the show and his relationship with the show, and how number two's description of his relationship to events in this scene with number two four nine is, is simply allegorical for you know for all those feelings as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you can read it in both ways and given what we know now about the prisoner and the making of the show, it it does add that extra dimension to the dialogue in this scene. So number six goes to speak to the leader of the band who are playing at the bandstand in the grounds of Port Marion. And you can kind of tell what time of year it is because the uh, hydrangeas have all got, um, uh, the the flowers have all turned brown and crispy.
1: But there's new growth on it, so it must be, was this shot in the spring then?
0: It could have been last year's dead flowers with new growth coming. So it could could be early in the year.
1: So this could be the second batch of filming they did in Port Mary. It was that early batch where they did the early episodes, wasn't there? Yeah. Which was, I think, September, October time. Could be wrong. Um, And then they went back, didn't they, to do... Some extra stuff in Port Marion.
0: Yeah. yeah. But they they haven't deadheaded the old hydrangea flowers, <laughs> which is what we do to our hydrangeas in kind of mid-spring. Yeah. Because you leave the heads on so that it protects the plant from frost in the winter. That's what my mum always told me anyway.
1: And if we haven't lost any listeners yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> caring, caring for your hydrangeas with the Tally Ho podcast. <laughs> um. Yeah, he's talking to the band leader (laughs) because they're playing at the bandstand. And uh, the the weird thing was that when we were watching this again the other day, we had literally just started uh, watching and Hot Coat Deceased from the beginning. And it's the third episode. Yeah. Um, It's one with
1: the two gangs, the London gang and the Glasgow gang.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That This guy, the band leader, played by Victor Madden, was in that playing playing the uh, police officer who's after both of the gangs. Mm. And I looked him up, and he was just in everything. Absolutely, he's got the longest list of television credits I've ever seen in my life. And film credits as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And here he is popping up in uh, this role in The Prisoner, where uh, he takes a request from number six at the bandstand, and then you see him reporting this to number two, where he says that he requested... The Farandole from the... Uh, I've already forgotten how you pronounce it, the... La Lacienne. That's the one. The La suite mm. suite. <laughs> um, basically taking a dig at number two of the fact that that was the music that he was listening to on the records mm. in the shop at the very beginning. Number two asks what else number six said to him. And no matter how much the band leader protests that he didn't say anything else, number two doesn't believe it because... Nothing other than everyone being in on this mm-hmm. can make sense to him. Now, at one point, he asks if um, Number Six had asked something about him, and I mean, we don't know who this this band leader is. Mm-hmm. It just to be a random village resident. Why does Number Two think that Number Six is talking about mm. him to just random people in the village? And he keeps asking him again and again. You know, what else did he say? What did he do? And he's asking these impossible questions for people. And it's, it's just like right at the beginning, he was asking impossible questions of number 73, hmm. who who, either couldn't or wouldn't give any more answers. And now he's just constantly asking and asking things because no answer is going to satisfy him.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think this is pretty the most explicit example yet in the episode of how what he did to number 73 is being engineered back onto him. Uh, you know, by number six, through all these uh, secret ploys and traps to foster number two's paranoia and fear of uh, everyone around him talking about him, you know, amongst themselves, etc.
0: Yeah, and it, if you put yourself in the shoes of someone like the band leader in this case, mm. if you're living in this you know, inc- aggressive surveillance state and you get brought in for questioning about what you saw someone doing or what they said to you Hmm. and you start to fear that maybe you're being implicated as being an associate of someone who is trying to undermine the authority of of the people in charge and you know you're you're asked again and again what was it that they said eventually you might want to just start lying Hmm. and make something up to disassociate yourself from them you know it's classic um witch hunt tactics <laughs> in that if that other person is going down and you telling the truth that they didn't say anything to you is also going to mean that you go down what are you going to do you're going to make something up in order to say but it wasn't anything to do with mm. me but it puts you in an impossible position because you know being honest is just going to land you in trouble because no one will believe you mm. <laughs> number two is losing it he says you know who do they think they're dealing with this is all a plot I think he calls them pygmies <laughs> um, at one point. And he's talking about his own immediate superiors, but yeah. he, he clearly thinks that he is above all of them.
1: Yeah. And he feels that he doesn't have their backing or that they don't understand what he's trying to do and are not letting him get on with his way of doing things.
0: Mm. And then we have a very short scene of number six um, laying daffodils on the grave of number 73. And, Way back at the beginning, in the opening scene, when she is in the hospital, there are daffodils on a vase yeah. in the room. So it's just a nice visual callback to uh, to the flowers that we've already associated with her.
1: Yeah, and um, he also is seen posting something in the, the very generic looking, as always, village post box. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, here's something that we have never seen happen before, mm-hmm. and I think we'll never see it happen again. The supervisor of all people is, I guess, being some kind of talk radio Hmm. host. And he's using the announcement system to read out uh, personal messages Hmm. that people have posted in. Um, Who knew that you could do this in the village?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and this message appears to be from number 113 to number 6.
0: Yes, and it's warmest greetings on your birthday. May the sun shine on you today and every day. Nothing sinister about that, <laughs> is there?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's strange that it's a supervisor who reads them out, and it's not like Fenella Fielding doing mm. it. I mean, the voice of the of the PA system. It's you know, it's it's another job for the supervisor that we, that we didn't really realise before.
0: Yeah, and this message has been apparently sent by number one hundred thirteen to number six. Yeah. Uh, even though number six himself has posted it. And he's got the number 113 from another one of the graves in the graveyard.
1: Yeah, it's the one, I think, next to number 73, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So he knows that this person uh, is dead. Although, weirdly, in in, uh, Free For All, weren't the reporter and the photographer from the Tally Ho number 113A and 113B? Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah.
0: So goodness only knows what's going on there. (laughs) Number two immediately senses something is up and checks his file to discover that no, it's not number six's birthday today. Hmm. Uh, Because we all know when number six's Mm -hmm. birthday is. And it was very recently in Many Happy Returns where Thorpe himself appeared. Yeah,
1: so I I think that's why it does feel like this number two is actually Thorpe. Because if you take Thorpe as being part of the conspiracy back home to send number six back to the village, um, obviously, at that point, the, num- uh, the number two was Mrs. Butterworth and she was aware that it was all a ploy to allow him to have that, that moment of freedom on his birthday and then bring him back again. We'll never truly know if if they are the same character, this number two and, and, and Thorpe. But the callback to an event in Many Happy Returns, which is the last time we see Thorpe, means that you know Thorpe knew when his birthday was and Thorpe is now making a specific reference to that date now. So it does. It does place it, um, you know, with both them being the same character, and uh, and actually it tells us that this must take place also after after many happy returns as well. Mm-hmm. If you we need, you know, I know we're constantly sort of talking about when the episode is taking place, but there are <laughs> these these odd anchor points which do make you know that certain orders must um, uh, must exist within at least some of the episodes of the prisoner.
0: Yeah, and I presume he also checks the file to check that number one hundred thirteen is dead.
1: Yeah. Um, and it's not one of the two reporters, it's an, it's an old woman who died a month ago or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he uh he heads off to um go and shout at the supervisor in front of everybody he's working, um, in that in that weird room that's got the giant seesawing eye <laughs> and all that. Um, where he shouts you, It's not number six's birthday. Number one hundred and thirteen doesn't exist and he's demanding an explanation for where this note came from and why it was read out.
1: Yeah. And the supervisor just looks completely befuddled by the whole thing. I mean, he's read out a message. I mean, he must know who number six is. So he might be quite suspicious about everything that's going on Mm. anyway. But the supervisor still reads out the thing. And, you know, you do wonder if number two, hearing the supervisor read this out means that he believes that the supervisor must be in on it as well. Because he's clearly reading out a message involving a character who's under such intense surveillance you know, why would you do this unless it was a provocation aimed at uh, aimed at number 2
0: yeah and he you know he he completely humiliates the supervisor by shouting at him in front of everybody in the room which is very intentional um you know standing up on their little balcony high above everybody mm. else telling him that that everything is wrong tells him that he's finished and the supervisor was clearly distraught because He's been in the village a long time, and he must know what it means for somebody to be finished. Yeah. Um, it's not gonna go well.
1: But also he's he's clearly seen a lot of number twos yeah. coming through the village. <laughs> and he's probably again it's part of that thing where this number two does not fit with how the village runs itself. It's never about the uh the cult of of the number two. Mm. You know, number two serves a purpose just like everyone else does. They oversee on the ground, what the village overlords want done, they should never become bigger than the village itself.
0: Yeah. And when number two demands to know what it means, and supervisor says it means what it says, Hmm. um, number two completely dismisses it because to him it must be some kind of code, it must mean something, more. it can't just mean what it says. Hmm. And it it reminds me of that bit in uh, Times of Big Ben um, when they're talking about the artwork. Hmm. And what does he say about it? He says... um, it means what it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, when the when the um is it when the three critics are looking at
0: uh Yeah, um, yeah.
1: At uh the disassembled boat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So he uh he fires uh the supervisor, tells him he's finished, immediately puts somebody else in charge, somebody mm. else in room says, Right, you you're in charge now. <laughs> you you do this.
1: Which is clearly not how things work in the village. I mean he's <laughs> trying to do things his own way. Yeah. And it just it's all starting to fall apart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He says, uh, "Stay clear of Number Six, or you'll lose more than your job."
1: Yeah. And then screams, "I'll break this conspiracy," <laughs> which is truly the you know the dialogue of somebody who is extremely paranoid and really losing it. Yeah. And uh, I think at this point, we now know that it, it's only a matter of time now. I think, and yet Number Six will persist because the outcome for Number Seventy Three was not mere interrogation and pressure it was it was something that resulted in in her loss of life and i think he's going to push uh, number two as much as he can
2: and here is a personal message for number six it is from 113 i'll call you later and it reads warmest greetings on your birthday may the sun shine on you today and every day that concludes the personal messages we continue with music
0: so now two has a copy of the tele-ho and he reads the personal ad that's in there. Um, number 14 tells him that uh, number six has put this personal ad in there. And he uh, translates it as, there's more harm in the village than is dreamt of, hmm. um, which is a translation of the line from uh, Don Quixote.
1: And again, it's an example of, you know, them using a quote from something and being able to translate it. Because I think he first says it, In the original Spanish Mm -hmm. and then translates it almost as a as a as a sign of showing that he's you know he's well read he understands these things he knows the quote he can understand it immediately.
0: Yeah. And uh, I've got well this is the Penguin Classics translation of Don Quixote and the quote we, we finally tracked it down is from chapter 46 46. And it's from this section. Right, this is uh, Sancho Panza talking first off. "'Oh, sir, there's more going on in the village than folks know about. "'With all due respect to your hard feelings, ma'am, "'what can be going on in any village or in all the cities of the world "'that can be known about, to my discredit, you peasant? "'If you're going to get cross now,' replied Sancho, "'I'll keep quiet about what it's my duty as a good squire to tell you "'and what any good servant ought to tell his master.' You say whatever you please, replied Don Quixote, so long as it is not the intention of your words to strike fear into me. For if you are frightened, you are acting like the man you are. And if I am not frightened, I am acting like the man I am. Which uh, I just thought was quite neat, because number two is acting like the man he is, and number six is acting like the man he is. (laughs) And only one of them is frightened in this situation.
1: So uh, number two is... is, uh translating this in the presence of uh, number 14 who number. is now pressing him to take action against number six as he's undermining uh, number two's authority and um, you know although uh, number two states his you know his his idea that you know he thinks that number six is you know is a plant um, and that you can't just go and take out a character like six if he's actually been placed there by the village overlords who technically he works for uh 14 says you know that he's he's happy to uh, make, you know, essentially make it look like an accident. Mm. Um, he can get rid of number six in some way, which is strange because again, it's what you were saying earlier about how whether 14 is somebody who has been brought with uh, number two to the village. So, so, so they've, come as, they've come as a pair and he's his right-hand man because he's showing a sense of loyalty to number two, which it reflects the conversation at the very end of the episode which is about whether the number two is ever above the village or yeah. could actually go against the village in any way. And it's clear that both of them are thinking about this, which is not the village way of doing things. Everyone is, everyone always gets their orders and they carry them out here. They're deliberately willing to subvert those orders because they feel that there is a personal threat to themselves. Certainly number two is like that, but number 14 is so loyal to him that he's willing to, to uh, do whatever it takes to to actually um, uh, support sort of number two in spite of whatever the consequences may be when you, uh, when you go against uh, the village way of doing things.
0: Yeah, so they start to head outside and waiting for them in the, uh, I suppose you call it the foyer of, mm. the, uh, of the Green Dome, um, is number six, who claims that number two has uh, called him and asked him to come there. <laughs> Uh, and then if it wasn't him, then there's someone in the village pretending to be him.
1: Well, it is a village of doubles, and there has been, you know, you know, a lookalike in in schizoid man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and number two heads back inside, thinking he's got to make a few calls. And he tells number fourteen that he won't be needed, and he gives him the uh, sideways eyes, which I think is uh, number two speak for. Go and take care of him, number fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> Who will rid me of this troublesome number six? <laughs>
1: yeah and number 14 uh, accuses 6 of being a troublemaker and uh, and then i suppose we segue into uh, one of the best scenes in the world of the prisoner itself
0: <laughs> or just uh, in the
3: world in the in the
1: world um so uh, basically what happens is uh, 14 seeing a chance to uh, to take on uh number 6 in some way almost as a show of uh, of strength against him Challenges him to a game of kosho.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But this has to be the most bonkers sport ever devised, where essentially you have two trampolines and a pool of water between them and a raised, curved uh, sort of
1: gantry around the outside.
0: yeah. Yeah. And the playing area appears to be the entire thing. So you can jump up onto the gantry, you can hold onto the rails. And the aim appears to be to get your opponent in the water mm. by whatever means necessary. But, but you have to do it wearing these strange red robes, which look really impractical. Mm. And, and crash helmets. And crash helmets. And very helpfully, number six is wearing the white helmet and number 14 is wearing the black helmet. So you can tell who the good guys are. <laughs> and they're just bouncing around trying to knock each other into the water. Yeah. I mean, what is this? Where, where, where did this come from?
1: I mean the first thing I remember you know, when I first watched this it was strange because this this game stuck with me more than the episode when I first saw it years ago I don't know why but I remember this and then it's one of those very iconic things about the prisoner mm. um the the first thing it reminds me of actually is um you know those really old school uh, sort of beat em up video games yeah where you used to have like in, like street fighter 2 or whatever those games were um it was you versus an opponent or whatever. And you'd be fighting on like this, you know, against the background. And occasionally what you could do is you could climb on things in the background and do all these things. It's literally laid out like a, like a fighting arena, <laughs> but the game itself, I mean, it's, it's unclear what, you know, how, you know, how the mechanics of it work other than the fact that, you know, you shouldn't go in the water, but at the same time, you're wearing things where if you did go in the water, you know, these are not practical clothes to get out of the water. in. <laughs> And yet you've got helmets on implying that you can bash your head on things. But there's very little physical contact um, involving sort of like hitting somebody over the head. Yeah. Um, and they have this weird, it's just got a very strange vibe to it. I mean, it's a mix of all, you know, there are elements of probably different kinds of sports which, show, which almost would show off a sense of a competitor's own athleticism. As well as their sort of ability to take on somebody else in the same game, it's a very, it's a very strange kind of sport. And what I love about it is that it's a really good example, I think, um, of real world building in in the prisoner. Yeah. Um, I mean, so far we've seen, you know, I think we always talk about, you know, think about Rover, think about the way they have, I know the fonts on the signs, think about the you know the dress codes they have, all these things which you know which we always talk about in terms of the iconography of the prisoner and like that. In this, it's a, it's really interesting because Kosho appears in this episode and it would appear again in the next one, yeah. I think, as well. It's your funeral. But it is... Somebody just said, let's play Kosho. It's clearly a dueling kind of game. It's introduced immediately. It has no obvious reference points for the viewer. And yet it's clear that people in the village are aware of this game and, and everyone knows how to play it, including Number 6, who has never been seen playing it before. It's just a thing that you do. And... um as a you know as yeah, as a sport as well, a lot of genre t v shows and films there is this thing where people do come up with unusual sports and activities which are you know um you know strange futuristic things that happen in you know dystopian worlds, whether it's like rollerball or death race, hmm. but in those cases, people make whole films about them. <laughs> You know, it's like this is a you know this is a film about a futuristic world where this is the sport that people do. You know, with robots fighting, or this game, or a subversion of a game that we know now being being played many years in the future, like rollerball or whatever, um, or Quidditch or something. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. It's just the made up game they have. And there, they're they're really emphasised as this is part of the of the fantasy of the TV show or film. In this case, this is a game which is happening in a show which. Is set at least when it was made in the contemporary era mm. when this this game does not exist in the real world <laughs> so it's you know everything else that exists in the village, whether it's you know the work credit system, whether it's video phones, whether it's mobile phones um all these different aspects of new technology they are meant to be sort of strange bits of technology that the village has in this case, kosho is. You know, it's not a futuristic sport because this is a. It doesn't have any relevance outside in the real world, does it? It's just a. It's a thing which exists purely in the village, but it has the air of being completely unnatural. So you know, it. In one respect, it's not like it's not a subversion of anything in the real world. I mean, why the village would need its own sport is never really clear, but the fact that they can use it in this dueling format is. You can almost see it as as a way in which. They've devised a way for people to, you know, to duel in this environment, and yet we've seen people playing games before. They played chess, a real game.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, yeah, you know, they've obviously played human chess as well, which is sub, which is a subversion of it. But there are reasons why they allow people to play human chess. But all the other things we've seen happen have always been real things or extensions of real things. This just has no place anywhere. But it just makes the world of the village just seemed for those few moments that little bit stranger than the real world. Um,
0: yeah, and in The Schizoid Man, when uh, 6 and 12 have their... Um, they, they have an sort of impromptu boxing match. They uh, they try shooting. They don't play crosso against each other.
1: No, there's fencing as well, isn't there? Yeah, there's yeah, fencing yeah. as
0: well. Although, you know, it would be quite difficult to do split-screen crosso, I suppose. <laughs> But, uh, oh, can I go on an impromptu tangent here?
1: Well, you went on hydrangeas earlier, so...
0: <laughs> this one isn't even in my notes. I've literally just thought of it. Uh, don't worry, it's Hamlet related. <laughs> so, in Hamlet, right, you've got Hamlet running around doing those mad things and Claudia's becoming increasingly paranoid that he's on to him or that he's going to cause too much trouble and, and stir things up. Um, and he wants to get rid of him. And Claudius and Laertes um, plot to... Okay, spoilers for Hamlet. They plot to kill Hamlet in a, a sword-fighting duel, but but not a duel to the death a practice duel, but to make it look like an accident. And in here, you've got Number Six running around, doing loads of mad things, winding Number Two up, thinking that he's undermining his authority, hmm. wants to get rid of him. So he and Fourteen plot to get rid of Number Six in what looks like an accident that uh, the authorities will uh, not look twice at but instead of fencing they're off playing kosho but unfortunately they get interrupted by a couple of other players who are like we booked this court (laughs) (laughs) oh your time's up (laughs) we've had this book for a week now it's our kosho practice So back in the village stores, uh, number six has gone in to buy a notebook. And he also notices a uh, fortuitous delivery of large cuckoo clocks that has just come in for some reason. And uh, he asks about buying one. I don't know where he gets all his work units from. He never seems to do anything. Yeah. Um, but he's got enough for a cuckoo clock. And he uh, makes a big show in front of the shopkeeper of picking out a certain one yeah. he's looking for.
1: And he's more interested in the box. Yeah. And this relates to that I think before he goes into the village stores he he does look um around and he sees a pigeon doesn't he and mm-hmm. this is where he's like ah new plan.
0: Yeah. So he wants a box that has the right kind of lid mm. for his plan um but he makes the shopkeeper think that he's looking at the clock itself mm. and and picking out a particular one. So he uh he takes the clock and uh, heads off, and of course the shopkeeper dutifully calls it into number two, saying that he thinks that he was looking for a very specific clock amongst yeah. all the ones they had.
1: Yeah, I think he volunteers one, doesn't he? He says, "Oh, you should get this one." Yeah, but um, he doesn't. He doesn't get why why six chooses the other one for his box. Yeah.
0: Um, so six is having a sandwich outside his uh, his cottage, <laughs> and. Uh, he uses the crusts to set this trap for the pigeon, where it's it's a fairly standard trap using a pencil and the flappy lid of the box, mm. and a few jam sandwich crusts tucked inside.
1: Yeah, it's a fairly classic trap.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> good trap. And then to make sure that no one's looking in that direction, uh, he tries a bit of misdirection by leaving the clock outside the door to the Green Dame. Yeah.
1: It's a, it's great because at this point he's doing all kinds of crazy things. But I think I get the sense that he's, um, I know he's thinking on his feet, you know, he's he's clearly a very smart character, but he knows what the sequence of these traps actually is. Mm. He knows that they're escalating and he knows how to manipulate everyone to kind of, be part of the whole conspiracy, draw them into this whole thing without them realising, knowing all the time that number two is watching everything and is going to be seeing, seeing what Six is doing and becoming ever more paranoid.
0: Yeah, so number two assumes that this must be a bomb in mm. the uh, in the cuckoo clock and immediately calls in the uh, cavalry to come and collect mm. it. And they arrive with a a fire bucket and a big metal box mm. To pour some sand over it.
1: And I mean, the only difference between, I mean, they just rock up in a mini mode, don't they? <laughs> And the only addition to their costume is the use of a couple of fire helmets.
0: <laughs> it's not going to do them much good. <laughs> exactly. If it really is a bomb. Um, but according to uh, Rob Fairclough's book, hmm. that fire bucket is the actual fire bucket from the Port Marion Hotel.
1: So there was a significant risk if you were at the hotel whilst it was being filmed, <laughs> if it was a fire. <laughs> They were using it to defuse a cuckoo clock somewhere, you know, you know, somewhere <laughs> down the road. Because we know that they were using it as a real resort when all this was happening. Yeah, so,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. Like, can we boil your fire bucket for five minutes?
1: Oh, health and safety. Health and safety. It's not the same. <laughs> uh,
0: meanwhile, the uh, pigeon trap is working exactly as planned. <laughs> um, the pigeon is inside having a snack. And uh, Num6 comes along to collect it and move to the next stage of the plan. He has he'd caught the pigeon, caught the pigeon. <laughs> So while Six heads off into the woods with the pigeon in the box the uh, bomb, in inverted commas is being dismantled by a techie in a hat which is not going to protect him surrounded by sandbags which are going to protect everybody else and all it is is a clock and he does the the funny little kind of whoo-whoo-whoo-whoo bits using the air air things and uh, rather mockingly flicks the uh cuckoo itself at number two when he comes around the corner
1: yeah he's deeply unimpressed by the whole thing and i think i think the look on number two's face where he still doesn't really buy it you know he still genuinely believes that he was right but wait but in the face of even evidence suggesting that this was just a cuckoo clock he can't he can't bring himself to understand everything that's going on and he knows that everything that goes against his hypothesis simply reinforces it to him because he's so paranoid now you know, in the belief there is this big conspiracy involving everyone in the village against him, that um, this is like just more—it's more evidence that 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 what he thinks is actually correct.
0: Yeah, and up in the woods, uh, number six is walking through the uh, mangrove walk <laughs> and approaching a restricted area. Yeah. So number sixty, the new supervisor, calls into number two to warn him that number six is up to something and number 6 uses his notepad that he's just bought writes down a series of eight numbers yeah um on a scrap of paper rolls it up and attaches it to the pigeon
1: yeah well so, so the numbers are 20 60 40 47 67 81 91 and 80 mm-hmm. and that doesn't seem to be that relevant what is relevant that we realize when we're watching this is that he writes these numbers down with sort of a, a black felt tip pen yeah um, and he he folds this um, this piece of paper up, and uh, he attaches it um, to uh, the pigeon's leg, and he yeah. releases the pigeon, so it's going to act as a you know as a message that will get sent out. And he knows it obviously he's being watched, and this is going to alert the village uh, control room to the fact that six has uh, potentially released a coded message of some kind uh, into the wild. It's taken off, and it could escape the village radars and and you know be part of. Six's subversion of the village itself and a means, at least to number two, of undermining him personally as part of this conspiracy against him.
0: Yeah. But when they bring the pigeon down, and thankfully they don't initially just blast the pigeon out of the sky, mm. which is what the supervisor was planning to do, um, number two arrives and demands that he has to get the message intact. Mm. So they put the, uh, um, what do they call it, the beam. Yeah, The beam on the minimum uh, setting and uh, beam the pigeon out of the sky. But the pigeon is apparently fine Mm. because then the pigeon is brought in alive to number two. um, Very much intact, uh, which is nice. And uh, he takes the message off the pigeon and unrolls it. And it's the same eight numbers in a completely different pen.
1: Yeah, it's all in biro.
0: Yeah.
1: In a strange moment of uh, of number six's... um... Uh, you know gaslighting of uh, number two it appears that now Patrick McGowan is now gaslighting the audience (laughs) (laughs) by making them see the same message being written in different pens and make you think what the hell's going on is it the same message is it a different message Um,
0: yeah it's gone from sort of black felt pen to blue biro
1: I love it when when you're watching these things so closely that you know continuity errors are essentially the things which you know, which number two is being drawn in on, and start to get really paranoid about. And as you, as a viewer, um, if you are watching it closely, you just start getting sucked into the whole thing as well, thinking, "Ah, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean?" Oh no, it's you know, it's just like many other things that happened in um, in TV shows then, and of course now, which is occasionally there are continuity errors, but in an episode like this, where the paranoia is just so heightened, um, it's just a it's a bizarre thing that's so noticeable when you you know when you realise that. Uh, it's the same message, but uh, in two different pens. Mm-hmm.
0: So number two takes us down to the uh, techies in the, I suppose you call it a computer lab, mm. to run these numbers through the machine, which is programmed to decipher code of some kind. Yeah, And the code comes out as vital message tomorrow, 0600 by visual signal. Mm. So first of all number 6 must know enough of this code to know how to write that in code yeah which suggests that he is some kind of spy
1: yeah he must have knowledge of these coded languages and certainly Thorpe or number 2 um he must know that 6 is capable of these things yeah you know so he knows that it is a code and if they didn't know each other from their time outside of the village he would know that this is the kind of thing that 6 would uh, be able to do
0: yeah, but also what I like about this is if you can write these codes and numbers, it suggests that you can make code out of village residents.
1: Ah, yeah, it's the first time. Yeah, they're using. You know, numbers have been so ingrained as a as a means of identifying people, but actually here they're being subverted to a, you know, as a as a code that uh, is used in the village at least.
0: Hmm. I and mean, he could have just been writing down the numbers of his eight favourite villages. <laughs> <laughs> I really like number 20. They're my best friend. <laughs> Maybe
1: 3 doesn't like. Ooh. Or in order of increasing likeness. <laughs> the possibilities are endless. Well, not endless. It's about, it's about 10 different possibilities. That's it.
0: <laughs> but no, it's a message saying that there's <laughs> uh, going to be a visual signal tomorrow. Um, so number two is now even more paranoid. Uh, number six, make sure that he's up nice and early before six o'clock, knowing that everyone is going to be watching him takes a stroll down to the beach Mm. with a a sort of pocket mirror and um, in full view of all the cameras which are on him, uses Morse code to um, flash a message using the sunlight of the sunrise catching the mirror. Again, it suggests that, well, that he's either some kind of spy or that he was in the military or something that he would know enough Morse code to be able to send that message. yeah. I mean, I can just, you know, I can send out an SOS in Morse code. That's literally the only <laughs> Morse code I know. And I was in the Girl Guides for years. So, uh, yeah, goodness only knows if to be that good at Morse code that you can flash that out.
1: Yeah. But in this case, uh, when number two is, uh, is obviously watching number six on the beach, sees a message and he's completely paranoid, thinking that this is a message that's going out to sea, uh people in the control room say that there is no one out there there's no boat there's no submarine or anything and uh so there's a question of you know what this message is where it's going what it even means um so then you know, he's running around the control room he's comp- he's he's kind of losing it actually at this point because he, he you know he he knows this must mean something um so he asks uh, somebody to decode it and the message is a Patter pattercake, baker's man Bake me a cake as fast as you can, <laughs> and there's a look on, on number two's face, which essentially is first, hmm, what does that mean? And then he realises, oh, maybe it's not a code, but he's also thinking maybe it does mean something. It's just like you know, he's his, he's in a state where everything might mean something, and he's not sure if he's missing some hidden meaning in everything. Then he goes back down to the lab, and they have a machine which is almost, almost kind of like the one we saw in the general, hmm. where you could input. Um, a message and it will kind of or a question, and it spits out an answer in some way, and uh you know kind of humorously he um he asks the technician to put in that message, and it spits out the same message back as well, so he just looks completely flummoxed by the whole thing and storms off
0: yeah he he concludes that the computer isn't programmed for whatever this code is, hmm. which must make him feel like he's being kept out of the loop. In something.
1: And you also must think that Six is somebody who's involved in a line of work that maybe allows him to have access to new codes, mm. you know, so maybe, you know, again, you know, it, it lends a lot of credence to the idea that, that Six was involved in some kind of spy work or was affiliated with it in some way for him to know some of the things he's doing here. Because a lot of these things are, in this episode, involve a lot of subterfuge, a lot of planning, a lot of, you know, a lot of code breaking and things.
0: Yeah, but also it's nice that uh, this is another instance of a a nursery rhyme Hmm. coming into it, because we often get nursery rhymes.
1: Yeah, pop goes the weasel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Was it boys and girls come out to play? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And and it's something that will come back again later on.
1: Yeah, in a big way. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But also, like, is that when number two storms out of the room, he almost sort of trips over the uh, parts all the way out? Yeah, I saw that. (laughs) (laughs) He, like, tries to save it, like... Nobody saw me trip, it's fine. <laughs> so uh, then number six goes to the cafe again, um, where number 14 is having a squad of lunch, or it could be breakfast, who knows. Um, and he, uh, he goes up to him and starts talking to him, which completely perturbs number 14, because why is number six having this apparently meaningless chat with him. He's talking about how nice it was walking on the beach um, in the fresh air, I think it was. Yeah, it's the same
1: kind of weird, rambly statements that you know, they had on, on that shortwave radio mm. um, in Dance of the Dead.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, you know, it's, these things have come up a couple of times now in the show, and again, they, they seem to be part of you know, encrypted messages or some kind of mm. code language which is being used that certain people are familiar with. Um, but I like the fact when he uh, when he starts talking to 14, um, he does that thing where he knows that he is being watched by the waiter in the cafe. Mm. So by engaging in the conversation with 14 and prompting him in certain ways to behave in certain ways, he knows that he is triggering behavior that will be deemed suspicious by the waiter and then be reported back to number two.
0: Yeah, because when he says, don't look now, the waiter's watching, he knows that that will make 14 look at the waiter, and then the waiter will see 14 looking nervously at him, Mm. and will take that as some kind of confirmation that there was a surreptitious meeting going Mm -hmm. on. And uh, courtesy of Number two's call for increased vigilance, he's going to go and report it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So following on from uh, the waiter's uh, revelations to Number 2, uh, to then confronts number fourteen, so somebody who he's had decreasing trust of over the course of the episode. They started off very close, and now, you know, with uh, with all the all the slightly sort of paranoid feelings that have been developing, he now immediately assumes that uh, that fourteen is actually working with six and is part of the conspiracy. So, so the, so the one person who was part of it is. In a circle of, of one person, uh, <laughs> you know, is now, in his mind, part of this conspiracy against him.
0: Yeah. And, and no matter how much Number 14 protests that he is loyal to Number 2, Number mm. 2 isn't going to believe it. You know, you were whispering together, you must be in it with him. He slaps him, he calls him a traitor, tells him to get out. His
1: hair does some, some crazy flailing as well.
0: Yeah. And then he sort of chases him out of the room. Mm. Um, you know, shouting about how, you know, he'll he'll break the conspiracy and everyone's in on it and mm. they won't win. Then he accuses the butler of being in on it yeah. just because he happens to be standing there yeah. at that time.
1: But he but, but he also kind of raises his hand, doesn't he? Like he's going to hit him. I mean, he's lost he's lost control completely at this mm. point. And I think he there's no one who he trusts anymore. Um, I mean, the fact he kind of runs back into into uh, his little room, his private room. He just, you know, he's just lost any sense of connection with anyone else around him. And so, this, so obviously, 14 has now been thrown out. And he, I think, upset at the fact that Six has clearly turned number two against him, which is interesting as well, because obviously, you know, Six's plan was to turn 14 against two, you know, and, you know, it's just, you know, the whole situation is just kind of falling down. Mm. Um, uh He goes to confront Number Six and says, "You know that you have basically poisoned Number Two against me, so clearly he had some some connection that suggested that maybe you know he they were partners beforehand, weren't they? Mm. They knew each other well, they were both installed in the village together, and maybe they thought that they would be the ones who would kind of take down Number six and now the whole thing has just collapsed, and they've been separated now, you know, and they both believe the other person is is working against them in some way,
0: yeah." And uh, he also, I suppose, knows that he himself is finished. Yeah. Because he knows that number two's reign is collapsing. And that one way or another, he's going to be implicated as a failure. Yeah. And that that's not going to end well for him. So he attacks number six in his home. He's just lounging around listening to some more music. Yeah. As you do. And, and... that
1: fight, I mean, it's incredible. It's quite <laughs> a good fight, actually, because they have like some... Is there, is there like classical music playing in the background? Yeah and the whole place gets trashed and it's clear that half the furniture is just you know it can be easily tipped up flipped over all over the place <laughs> and they and they go at it for quite a long time all over the place just throwing each other up against walls uh you know flipping people over all kinds of nonsense
0: yeah they they take out the uh, kitchen worktop like it's not even nailed down it'd <laughs> be quite impressive probably wasn't nailed down to be fair and uh, number 14 also holds my uh, my favorite uh luminous yellow uh dish drainer off the sink rack at number six <laughs> um which is clearly this flimsy plastic thing and he just holds it and it was the nearest thing mm-hmm. that he's got um and it ends with number 14 getting chucked through the uh glass doors
1: hmm. which is also an interesting parallel to you know 73 mm. throwing herself through the window at yeah. the end. yeah
0: yeah yeah So now that number 14 is uh, out for the count, all that's left is to go see what number two is doing. Um, The butler has packed a case and is leaving (laughs) the house. He's been told to get out, so he's going out. He probably knows he'll be back because number two isn't going to last very long. He's seen a lot of number twos come and go in his time there. So number six goes to pay number two a visit. He says, you know, all your friends have deserted you. I thought you were supposed to be the strong man. You were supposed to be the hammer. Um, well, I think in the end he was the hammer, but he broke himself on on the anvil. And number two accuses number six of being this D six, yeah, this person sent to spy on him, and says, you know, you didn't fool me. I, you know, I was always on to you. I knew what you were doing.
1: Yeah, he still believes this this paranoid delusion that there is this conspiracy, mm. um, and it all it all stems from that original note. You know, it clear it's clear that that was the seed that six planted that has worked exactly as planned it's kind of blossomed into this overwhelming um conspiracy theory involving absolutely everyone around him and by taking apart number two's network he's kind of left him so isolated and he's the kind of person who also believes so much that he is right in the situation that he feels he doesn't need anything else around him and by being an individual in this case, this then makes him incompatible with being able to function. I mean, he's lost sight of everything. And you realise that his way of doing things not only is incompatible with how the village likes to do things, but also it 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 shows that when he needs assistance or help, that network is completely gone. You know, he's left on his own and he he still believes that he is... Right, I think he accuses Number Six of, you know, obviously of you know of being this spy. But it's immediately countered by Six very calmly. So, so all this, um, all the venom that's being spat out by um, by Number Two. I mean, Six just basically says, "Well, you know, if this is true, if what you're saying is true, and I am this D6 character, and I was really reporting to X04, then that implies that, you know, this was something that was being organised by the village, or by the village overlords in some way." And what you have done is, and again, if this is true that this is that this conspiracy is correct, what you have done is you have interfered with this plan, and that essentially you know it's it's deemed to be treason within the village to kind of go against the um plans and the ways of doing things that the village you know organizes It seems to be the case that this number two has kind of struck out on his own and brought his own way of doing things, and he's done it in spite of everything he probably knows is is correct you know he's gone against all the ways that any number 2 has dealt with not only number 6 but everything and uh and maybe the village knows that you should never engage with people and try and damage them you know you know they always say oh yeah we've been told we shouldn't damage number 6 hmm. maybe they they are aware that if you really try and damage him or try and break him it won't end well they know he's they know he's the kind of character who can actually push back a lot.
0: Yeah. And I think if you look at the way this number two was so desperate to always be obeyed and to not have his orders questioned. Mm. And the way he got angry with anyone who even, you know, asked why they were being asked to do something or, or, or questioned his authority mm. in any way. You know, if, if if someone didn't turn up to his house when he asked them to, he would send people to go and beat them up and drag them there. He 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 was so desperate to be, completely obeyed, but it never occurred to him that he had to completely obey whoever was ahead of him in that village hierarchy, mm. and that that meant that if someone above him had sent D six spy mm. on him, that he shouldn't interfere, no matter how much it hurt his ego not to do that. Mm. Um, he 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 couldn't bear not being the one in complete control. Yeah. And ultimately collapsed under the idea that there was someone in control of him.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. He's he's stuck in an interesting situation because he clearly believes that the role of number two is to be... Well, he almost believes that it gives you the right to do what you want. Mm. And it's clear throughout all the other episodes that have preceded this that you're simply given the role of implementing what the village wants done you're not meant to do things on your own that stray from you know from those plans by deciding that he knows best he has shown the uh, the type of individuality that the village does not like Mm -hmm. and actually actively uh, works against so he's essentially become in a strange kind of way the the kind of character that the village probably views number six as in a strange kind of way, but he's more troublesome because he's in, uh, and by he, I mean, you know, number two is actually in control of the village. You know, he's not somebody who can be trusted or relied upon, but six, however, is kind of, he's left to kind of deal the, the final blows when I mean, he sees that, that two is crumbling as um, indeed completely broken. And he basically asks, Number two, to uh, report himself to the village hierarchy and report the fact that I think he refers to it as like a breakdown in control, Mm. you know, to basically say that he is no longer fit to carry on his job. So he's finally actually broken number two to the point where if you view him, you know, 50 minutes earlier in your episode, he was doing whatever he wanted. And now he is, he is so broken that he has to uh, relieve himself of the of the position that he has clearly relished at the beginning, but struggle to maintain.
0: Yeah. So as uh, number two picks up the giant red phone of doom to uh, call in his own failure mm. to his superiors, um, he sort of crumples into the chair Yeah. as number six just leaves the room and the doors close.
1: Yeah. And uh, I wonder if this is basically what happened. I think you said this earlier as well, you know, what happened you know, at the very end of A, B, and C? Mm. When the phone rings and Colin Gordon looks at it, you know, after spending the, you know, the whole time drinking a huge amount of milk <laughs> to, you know, to settle his nerves in his stomach, you know, I think it ends, doesn't it, with the phone ringing? Yeah. And it's probably the same call that he has to make. I mean, at least Colin Gordon had a couple of chances to, you know, to do this. In this case, this is, this is number two's hubris ultimately failing him. It leaves him a shadow of his former self. And this now completes the, the circle that began at the beginning of the episode, with number six essentially making good uh, on his promise to number two that he would make number two pay for uh, for what he had done to number seventy three. You could be working for the enemy, or you could be a blunderer who's lost his head. Either way, you failed, and they do not like failure here. You destroyed. yourself so that's it for our recap review and discussion of episode 10 of the prisoner hammer into anvil like we said at the top of the episode a very unusual episode in terms of how it fits in with the the format if you can call it that of uh, of the show but one which really highlights some interesting themes that show a you know a different side of of the village and as we've discussed, I think, deal with some interesting ideas that may reflect McGowan's own relationship with the show and potentially how he felt about being put in charge of the operation. I mean, in a strange kind of way, maybe he viewed the show as something that needs to be very heavily micromanaged and controlled <laughs> in some way. And he viewed himself as, as the number two who was, who was given the role of looking after it. Um,
0: Does that mean that uh, number one would have been Lou Grade? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe it was. I
1: mean, I think there's something there's something interesting about you know about some of the lines of dialogue in this, and you know, although it is a very interesting treatise on the nature of power and the way in which six actively seeks revenge, the fact it's so openly for a show of its time deals with. Um, the issue of mental health and you know the breakdown that number two actually has is is quite explicitly explored in terms of how he experiences it and how people around him observe it as well I mean it's doing all these all these different things but you can also view it as a as an interesting allegory for um, maybe how difficult it was to bring this thing to the screen um, and how in spite of maybe a prescribed way of doing things. You had, to be, you had to be individual and have a vision to do it your own way. But ultimately, maybe he's also saying that that's what would break him as well. Mm. You know, it was, you know, you know, the burden of this thing was was too much to bear. And, I, you know, I think he, you know, I'm not saying that he um, he failed in any way at all, but I think it just deals with the fact that I think creating this show must have really pushed him to the edge. And an episode like this, I think, reflects that. But it also works in terms of making the show such a, you know, original and groundbreaking thing. That that's the cost of making it is that it it took everything from him. I think
0: there are some interesting parallels between this episode and the next one coming up, which mm. is "It's Your Funeral." Yeah, which we'll get into more next time. Yeah, uh, once everybody's watched "It's Your Funeral," but that do make me question which way around they go in the order. Mm. One before the
1: other, yeah. Because I think there's there's a certain plot point that we'll come to. I think it can't be a like a, a coincidence. Although they although they don't explicitly reference these events as being connected, mm. there are things that do come up in the show, and this is one of them where you can see that there are thematic links between them. And I think some of them are at least in part intentional. You can't put everything down to uh, you know a continuity error or a coincidence.
0: So that's going to be next time. We're going to be talking about It's Your Funeral. But now, before we sign off, uh, we're going to have our usual roundup of all the news from the world of the Prisoner with Rick Davey from the Unmutual website.
2: This is Rick Davey of the Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of the Prisoner. All the arrangements are now in place for Not A Number, a Patrick McGowan retrospective an event taking place at Elstree Studios this Saturday, the 23rd of June. Special guests include actresses Jane Merrow and Vera Day, and directors John Huff, Alex Cox and Alvin Rakoff, plus technicians from The Prisoner, Tony Sloman and Ian Rakoff, who also co-wrote the episode Living in Harmony. The event also includes screenings of rare material, specially conducted video interviews with Susan Hampshire and Fenella Fielding, displays, signings and much more. Tickets are still available for the event. Visit the Unmutual website for more details. Congratulations to Teleho podcast listener Merlina Waterworth, who has won the podcast competition to win two tickets to the event. The correct answer was Disco Ball. In other events, early bird tickets are now available for the Eternal Village Prisoner Convention, taking place in Seattle in September. Tickets purchased during June are only $39 for the event, which includes several special guests, including actress Annette Andre. In 1990, journalist Howard Foy conducted the last in-depth interview regarding The Prisoner, which Patrick McGowan would conduct, and the interview has now been released on CD. Priced at 7 is available from the Coit Media and our mutual websites, as well as Amazon, Port Merion and all good stockists. Network Distributing have announced that Danger Man, the TV series which starred Patrick McGowan as secret agent John Drake, is to be released on Blu-ray in 2019. And finally, congratulations to Village Voice actress Fenella Fielding on being awarded an OBE in the most recent honours list. Join me again on the next Tally Ho podcast for all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. Be seeing you.
1: So once again, thank you, Rick, for giving us the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. I suppose this is not like Dave, where you have reruns, but um, (laughs) all the time, which kind of take things out of context in time when people might be listening to these episodes. But uh, we're recording this in the week in which there is the Elstree Not a Number event that we're going to be at. So I'm sure in the next uh, podcast episode... We'll probably talk about, I'm sure, a little bit some of the things that happened at the uh, Elstree Not a Number event, which celebrates the life of Patrick Magoon. And We're really looking forward to that and seeing all the things that are going to be happening, not just um, the talks, the signings, the screenings of things. If you're listening to this and it's before June 23rd, <laughs> um, you know it's well worth uh, going along and seeing that event.
0: Yeah, so we'll be talking about that next time when we're also talking about the episode. It's your funeral. And also next time, we're going to have an interview with Annette Andre, who was in the episode, It's Your Funeral, all about the time she spent working on The Prisoner, but also about a lot of the other work she did, particularly the role that she's most famous for, which is for playing Jeannie in Vandalin, Hopkirk, Deceased.
1: Yeah. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the episode as well, if you get the chance, we put out a bonus episode previous to this one, which is a chat with writer, actor, and artist Brian Gorman, which discusses his work on the Everyman biography of Patrick McGoon. That was a stage play, then became a graphic novel and and an audio drama as well. And his recent work on uh, his new One Man Bond show as well. And that'd be really interesting if you're. Well, it, well, it's a really fun interview. It was really fun to talk to Brian, and it was a. You know, it's a kind of thing where if you're interested in the prisoner, I think it's a. It's an interesting tangent that you might want to get into, and certainly check out Everyman as well if you're interested in the life of uh, Patrick McGowan and the prisoner.
0: Yeah. Uh, but until then, if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA, on our website, timeforcakesnail.com, or there's also a Facebook page, Time for Cakes and Yep,
1: yeah, get in touch. Let us know what you think of this or any other episodes. Um, if you subscribe to the podcast through things like iTunes please uh leave us a rating and review because it really helps us kind of build word about the podcast to get the word out and it's nice to know what people think of uh, what we're doing as well it's really fun for us to put these episodes out and it's really fun in the uh in the weeks that follow to interact with everyone and talk about things that uh uh, come up as we discuss these episodes
0: yeah so if you are at the not a number event do come and say hi to us (laughs) um we're not pixelated in real life but you'll probably recognize us (laughs) But until then, signing off from the tally-ho, be be seeing seeing you. you.